Well, good morning. Morning and happy Thanksgiving. I'm glad I get to say that to you all today. Whether you're here with us on site or online, uh, I hope you can find a way to celebrate with friends and family this weekend uh, in enjoyable but also in a safe manner. Today, uh, we have an opportunity to continue looking through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel in our series that we're calling Stand. And we come today to another fairly well-known story that's found in Daniel chapter 5. Now, the people and the setting of this particular story have been confirmed by historians. It's been confirmed by archaeology. And yet still, some people consider this particular story to be a myth because of the supernatural manner in which God reveals himself, in which God reveals his message to the people. But that hasn't prevented sort of um, common 20th century English from grabbing two particular sayings that relate back to the story. And you've probably heard both of these sayings. One in particular is, your days are numbered. You've probably heard that maybe in a movie at some time, or, or hopefully no one has ever said that to you at some point. Your days are numbered. It refers to someone or something that's not going to survive much longer. I imagine that over the past few weeks, there was a few farmers walking around their ranches, looking at their turkeys, going, your days are numbered. As uh, Later today, we're probably going to enjoy some of those. Another saying that comes from this particular story is, the writing is on the wall. Now, this speaks of a clear sign that something is going to come to pass. Now, often when we use this phrase in our everyday world, the writing is on the wall, we're sort of expressing a belief in the hand of fate. But as we're going to see in our story today, we can actually believe instead in the hand of God. Now, I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 5 with me, if you haven't done so already. And we're going to walk through this story today. It's one that takes place about 23 years after the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. So if you're with us last week, in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar had a moment, had an event that we're going to refer to a little bit today. But now we're hitting the fast forward button for 23 years beyond his death. And so we have a new king, but we still have some of the same issues. But actually, the same issues even worse. At this point, Daniel is about 80 years old, and he's been retired for about 20 years at this time. But he is still setting an example of how to stand with God. This time, however, he is going to show us what it looks like to stand with God, to stand against the profane in a manner that still honors his God-given name. Now, when we talk about the word profane, when I use that word, what we're referring to here is something that either offends or violates God's holiness, where something was meant to be used for a sacred purpose, something was set aside as sacred, but then it's used for some sort of secular or worldly purpose. It's it's profaned in that fashion. And like Daniel, everybody who considers themselves to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to stand against the profane. But the challenge that we find within that is how. How do we stand against the profane in a way that still honors God's name? How do we do so in a way that still preserves the integrity of God's message, but also us as his messengers, is the question that we're going to be looking at today. Now, in the 20 years since King Nebuchadnezzar's death, 
There has been a series of short-lived, like literally short-lived kings because they kept executing each other for a little while. But then it reached a point where there was King Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Nabonidus, who came to power. And over the reign, at the time that he reigned, there was one period near the end where he went on a 10-year conquest of Arabia. And while he was gone, while he was absent, he put his son in charge. His son's name is Belshazzar. And as our story opens in chapter 5, Belshazzar finds himself left all alone, home all alone in this kingdom. And reminiscent of every 80s teen movie you've ever seen, if you're left home alone, you have to throw a wild party. For all your friends, and you have to invite all the people that you want to impress. So he invites over all of his friends, but he also invites in all of the nobles. And he says, bring your wives. You know what, it's going to be the type of party where you can even bring your mistresses. And I'm going to have all my servants here. And, and historians tell us that the area and where this party was held, and, and for as best as they can tell, there could have been up to 15,000 people present for this epic kegger that he was throwing. The purpose of this was to put his wealth and his superiority on display for all people. Why? Because he wanted to attempt to rally their support, to encourage their support for him as their political and military leader. And as the party starts to grow wilder, he decides that he needs to demonstrate his greatness in a way that has never, ever been done before. And maybe it comes from a sense of wanting to make a name for himself. Maybe it comes from just simple immaturity. Maybe it comes from, from just plain stupidity. Whatever it was, he orders that the golden goblets that his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, stole from the temple in Jerusalem, he orders that those be brought into the party so they can fill them with wine and drink from them. And we see in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 5, it says, So they brought in the gold goblets that have been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and their wives and their concubines, they drank from them. And as they drank wine from them, they praised the gods of gold and the gods of silver and the gods of bronze and of iron, of wood and of stone. Now, these goblets, we're not 100% sure what they were used for in the temple. But the fact that they were in the temple, the fact that God designed them and commanded that they be made and placed in the temple means that they were sacred. These were sacred instruments in the worship and the praise of God. And here this king takes them and he profanes them. He does a blasphemous thing as he uses them in his revelry and his party. And then he pushes it a step further as he fills these gold goblets used in the worship of the true God of Jerusalem. He fills them with wine and he uses them to toast his gods of idolatry. Now to appreciate just how far Belshazzar has gone, just how significant of what he has done, imagine yourself, for example, if you were driving down the Anthony Hendy one evening, and as you come near the church, you look over to the side and you can see like there's these lights flashing off all over the place. And, and even at that distance, at that speed, you can hear the boom, boom, boom of the bass. You think, i got to go check out what's happening over at West Meadows. 
And so as you drive in and you pull in and you walk into the building, you see that up in the tech booth, they got a DJ up there. He's got his, his, his turntables as he's doing his DJ thing. You look up on the screen, they're showing like horror movies up on there. There's people dressed in revealing costumes. They've turned the baptistry into a hot tub. And they've decided to pass around shots in the communion cups and trays. I got to believe for a minute. If you walked in and saw that, you would not be impressed. You would be insulted. You would be disgusted and have a lot of questions. Like, like how could anyone allow this to happen? Who could be so insulting? Is anyone going to do anything? Will anybody take a stand against this? Well, the answer to those questions in the court of Belshazzar are answered in verse 5. As God himself comes and takes a stand against the profane. And we read in verse 5 that suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and it wrote on the plaster of the wall near a lampstand so that everybody in the royal palace could see it. And the king watched as the hand was writing. And as he watched, his face turned pale. He was frightened, and his, his legs started to become weak, and his knees were knocking, which is actually a, a polite way that the Bible says that he needed some new shorts. Now, when we read about the finger of God in the Bible, what's happening here is what's referred to as an anthropomorphism. That means that we're taking attributes of human characteristics, and we're applying them to the activity of God. And the Bible's full of examples where this happens. For example, in the book of Exodus, when it speaks about the plagues that God brought upon Egypt, and as the Egyptian magicians are trying to figure out what is happening, they declare that it is by the finger of God that these plagues take place. And when the people are set free and they wander through the wilderness, they cross the Red Sea and they find themselves at the foot of the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. It is said that the Ten Commandments are inscribed on stone by the finger of God. Of God. The psalmist then proclaims that the heavens, the very heavens themselves, are the work of the finger of God. And in Luke 11, it said that Jesus cast out demons by the finger of God. You see, this phrase that we find throughout Scripture is meant to convey the idea of God's presence, to reveal his activity in the world around us. To reveal and attribute his ability to act. That nothing is too hard for God. Imagine if you would, if you're watching the Olympics, in particular Olympic weightlifting. Where a hulk of a man walks up to a weight and he gets set and, and, and he grabs it. And as he picks it up, you can see the strain. You can see the veins. You think he's going to pass out or throw up or both. As, as he lifts that weight and he drops it. And is spent. Imagine that after him, God were to walk out to that same weight. And with the finger of God, just lift it. See, nothing is too hard for God, is what it's trying to convey. And I believe that this still happens today. And as we find ourselves here today in this time of thanksgiving, perhaps even as you gather around your thanksgiving tables today or tomorrow, and some families have this tradition of taking a moment to share what's happened in their lives from the past year. And I encourage you to do that. 
I encourage you to take a moment to do so, to, to see where the fingerprints of God are on the year that has just passed. It's, it's a much better topic than politics. I encourage you to reflect upon those sorts of things. And, and like Tim mentioned at the start of the services, he was reflecting upon that, as, as had I. And, and there are so many things that I am thankful for this year. I'm thankful to have my family here in church with me today, including our future daughter-in-law and our granddaughter, who's such a blessing to all. I'm thankful for God's continued calling upon, upon my life and Nadine's as he keeps us strong as we move forward in ministering to the people of this church and community. I'm thankful that in the, in the wake of this pandemic that has changed our world, God has continued to bless West Meadows. But, but, but not just bless us, but bless us to the point where we could be a blessing to so many others. And I'm thankful that Nadine is cooking the turkey today, which means there will be no raisins in the stuffing. Because that just wrecks the stuffing. And all of these things and more. Here's the thing. When I say more, I mean there are things we're not even aware of. That we can be thankful of. Times that God has protected. Times that he has provided. Times that he has guided us. That we're not even aware that he stepped in. And when we look back, we can see his fingerprints, his fingers. All over our lives and our stories. And in that vein, I just want to stop right now and and just say thank you, God. Thank you for your goodness this year. Thank you that you have provided for us. Thank you that you've guided us, that you've protected us, that you've given a purpose and a plan that you are going to see us forward. We give all glory and praise to you for that this day, Lord. Amen. Well, as these words are inscribed upon the wall, as the plaster falls to the floor, the party slowly grinds to a halt as one by one the guests see what's happening. But Belshazzar doesn't know what to think of all this. He doesn't know what to do. So he does what Babylonian kings have done for decades. Call in the wise men. The astrologers, the diviners, the enchanters, the wise men of the kingdom all come in and like the kings of the past, he says to them what they've always said in the past. Whoever can read these words, whoever can tell me what they mean, I will immediately clothe you in purple robes of royalty. I will immediately hang a heavy gold chain around your neck with a big dollar sign pendant on it. I, I will make you third in power in the kingdom. There'll be daddy, there'll be me, and then there'll be you. But at some point, we got to quit calling these guys wise men. Because so far, we are five chapters into the book of Daniel, and they have done nothing yet. They are 0 for 2 in the stories that we see, and they step up to the plate for the third time, and they strike out 0 for 3, because they're not able to read it. They're not able to interpret these words, and so the king's fear increases even more. Why? Because he knows the message is not good. Now, the commotion of all this taking place caused by the divinely engraved words upon the wall, reach the ears of the queen mother. This is Nebuchadnezzar's wife. She has seen much over the decades. She has heard much. And even in her grandson's court, she still holds great influence. So she enters the room. And as she enters the room and surveys what's been going on, her first step is to scold her grandson because of the panic he's showing that is unbefitting of a king. But then he also, she also scolds him because of his ignorance 
and not knowing who to call in such a situation. And we read in verse 11 and 12 where it says, where she says to the king, there is a man in your kingdom who has within him the power, the spirit of the holy gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him the chief over all of these wise men. This man named Daniel, whom the king tried to call Belshazzar, has exceptional ability. He is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what those words mean. He'll tell you what the writing says. Now at this point, Daniel has been out of service for over 20 years. But God's presence is still strong in him. His reputation precedes him still 20 years after. You see, he has made a name for himself as he stood before kings, rebuking them and calling them to repentance. But this good name that he had been established was not a celebration of himself. This good name he established was to honor his God. His very name, Daniel, means God is my judge. And in chapter 1, when Nebuchadnezzar tried to change his name to Belshazzar, which means Bel, the God of Babylon, protect my life. In that moment, in word and in deed, Daniel took a stand against such a profane thing. But he did so in a manner that retained his God-honoring name. And folks, we all have the same opportunity in our lives. You see, we can either live in a way that will honor our God-given names, or we can allow ourselves to be defined by the false names that the world and our own thoughts will try to pin on us. What are those names that our thoughts in the world tries to pin on us? The words that relate to our achievements, where, where we are defined for a lifetime by 15 minutes of fame, or, or are defined by our lack of achievement and therefore declared insignificant. There are words that come from our failures where we are determined to be unworthy and not worth forgiving, ourselves or by others. There are words that are related to our background, where where the things that we've done in the past, the mistakes we've made, maybe even just a momentary mistake seeks to haunt us and define us for a lifetime. These things only serve to separate. They serve to tear down. They say you're not worthy. Words that are defining us based upon our faith and that give us the label foolish, narrow-minded, old-fashioned. Or, or we can let God be the one who says who you are. We can live in the truth of God and we can find examples of who God says you are when we open the scriptures. For example, in the New Testament, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, you would find that when God looks at you, he declares that you have the potential to be made alive in Christ. He looks at you and says, you are worthy of saving. You are worthy of raising. You are worthy of seating in the heavenly realms. When God looks at each and every single one of you, he looks at you and he goes, you are my handiwork. When I look at you, I see a masterpiece. You were created with a purpose. And that purpose is to do good works for the only kingdom that matters, the only kingdom that will stand being the kingdom of God. When God looks at you, he says, you are made to be a holy vessel, 
a holy vessel in which God can dwell. And when you allow God to dwell within you as that holy vessel, he gives you a great hope for today and his promises for tomorrow. Wealth, power did not impress Daniel. He did not allow those things to define his name. He was defined by his faithfulness to God. He was defined by his good character that honored God. And he stood against the profane that would try to change his name. But he did so in a manner that retained and honored his God-given name. Now, Belshazzar had never met Daniel. He didn't know all this about him. He knew from other people these sorts of things about him. But he never experienced this himself. And so he summons Daniel. The man whose name means God is my judge. A man who had lived faithfully to that name for over 80 years at this point. And he comes and stands before the king, Belshazzar, who addresses him with an air of arrogance and self-importance. As he looks at this man of God that, that, that previous kings had raised to the chief of all wise men, Belshazzar looks at him and decides the first thing I need to do is remind him of where he came from. Daniel. Aren't you one of the exiles that my grandfather Nebuchadnezzar brought out of Judah? With a tone of doubt in his voice. He says, I've, I've heard, I haven't seen it for myself, but I've heard, I've been told that the Spirit of God is in you. That, that you have some level of great insight and wisdom. Revealing the low expectations that he has for what Daniel can do for him. He says, if... If, if by some chance you can read the writing that's on the wall and tell me what it means, then, then I, I'll give you what I promised the others. Purple clothes, gold chains, third in command in my kingdom. Now whether Daniel had already seen the words on the wall and kind of knew what they meant, or if he just didn't like this guy very much, he proceeds to tell him, King, you can keep your gifts. Give your rewards to someone else. Keep them for yourself for all I care. I don't want them, but I will still tell you what these words mean. But first, let me remind you where you come from before I tell you where you're going. Then Daniel says to him, God gave your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, great power. God gave him sovereignty. God gave him splendor. God gave him power, absolute power, over the whole kingdom. People feared him. People wanted to be him. But his heart became hard. It was full of pride. And it was set against the things of God. So God warned him. God tried to call him back to humble himself under the true, one true God who is to be served and honored. But your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, said no. And in the end of that, he lost everything. He lost his power his position, his possessions, even his sanity. What Daniel's referring to here is he retells this history story to Belshazzar, is what we talked about last week in chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to the people himself declaring God's rebuke of him. Daniel's call back to faithfulness to God and his lack of willingness to humble himself under God. And how in chapter 4 we read that Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride and because of his blasphemy, he was cut down. 
his kingdom was leveled. Until, until the moment in his story where he stopped and he looked up and he raised his eyes upward. And in chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says in his own words, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise, I exalt, I glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right. All of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, at the end of chapter 4 is this conversion moment that happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And that's significant, not only for Nebuchadnezzar's life itself, but also because he set an example for the kings to come. He set an example for his son and his grandson. But as Daniel now stands before his grandson, Belshazzar, who did not learn from the past mistakes of his predecessors, Daniel looks at him and says, but you, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all of this, you knew the history of your ancestors. And when you came to that fork in the road to say, do I humble myself or do I go the other direction? You chose the other direction instead and you set yourself up against the God of heaven. You are guilty of pride. You are guilty of blasphemy just like those before you. But instead of repenting, you took it a step further. You had the goblets of God's temple brought to you. You used them to toast the lifeless gods of gold, silver, and bronze. You treated the one true God with contempt, which was foolish because he is the one who holds your life in his hand. Everyone in this world has a line. And when you step over that line, you get a reaction. Belshazzar found God's line, and he leapt over it. And so this is what the God of heaven says to him. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Latin words. Literally translated mean mina, mina, shekel, and a half shekel. Three common units of money. But proverbially understood, they mean numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Daniel says to the king, O king, the writing is on the wall. Many, your days are numbered. Tekel. You know, God has assessed your life. He's put your life in the way, in the balance, and he's not pleased. Parson, your kingdom is to be divided. It is to be given to the Medes and to the Persians, those forces who have joined together to become your common enemy. And as, David, as Daniel says these words, purple claws are draped over his shoulders. A gold chain is dropped over his neck, and he is proclaimed third highest in the kingdom. Empty gifts. Gifts he has no interest in because they are rewards of a kingdom God has rejected. They are rewards of a kingdom about to fall. You see, while Belshazzar was throwing this epic kegger, his enemy, the Medes and the Persians, were literally at the gates. They were literally at the gates. He had placed all of his hope. He had placed all of his confidence in his own kingdom. 
And he thought that he could build basically a, a, what amounts to a, a heaven on earth, if you will. You see, in the kingdom of Belshazzar, it was one that had existed for many, many years. And every time a new king came to power, they would just add another level onto these walls. And it was at the point where the walls were so high and so thick and so large that you could, they would said you could ride a chariot around the top of the walls. But not just ride a chariot around, you could stop that chariot, do a three-point turn, and go the other direction. It was that large. He knew he had a city that was impenetrable. He knew he had the most powerful empire. He had the largest enemy. He had the greatest economy. It was an impenetrable capital. They had years of rations inside the walls. They had the ability to grow food inside the walls. They had the Euphrates River that flowed into the city. With all of this going on, there's nothing to worry about. So let's eat, let's drink, let's play at our pleasure. Nothing can topple our kingdom, is what he thought. Well, here's how the story ends. It ends as one of the most legendary stories in the history of war. That's recorded by the historian Herodotus. You see, it was true. The Medes and the Persians could not get past the wall. They couldn't go over it. They couldn't go through it. But while Belshazzar is partying with his friends, his enemy is planning and plotting. And what they decided to do is they went upstream and they diverted the Euphrates River. And when you divert a river and the water starts to drop, what was once a river flowing into your city turns into a walkway into your city under the wall. And as the water was diverted and the waters dropped and the ground dried, the army went in under the wall and history tells us that the city was taken in a night without resistance. And that happened on October 12th, 539 B.C. 2,560 years tomorrow. All that God said came to pass. As recorded at the end of chapter 5, it says that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. As the kingdom of two silver arms that were foretold in Daniel chapter 2, Step to center stage. Daniel finds himself still standing. Because you see, next week we're going to find out that he found himself a job in this new kingdom. And what do you think his job was? His job was to still stand. To still stand against the profane, but to do so in a manner that retained his God-given name. So when we consider the example of Daniel, I want to leave us with this thought of, of what does it look like in our own lives to stand in such a fashion? And I think it breaks down into two parts. You see, first of all, there's the first part of this statement that says to stand against the profane. That means that any time we see the secular, we see the worldly infringing upon the sacred, we are to take a stand. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ are to take a stand. And that starts in your own life. You see, all of us to some extent have the spirit of Babylon that exists within us. Some more than others. But to some extent, all of us have the spirit of Babylon within us. Where we're trying to create our own heavens on earth. 
the gated community with the great wall around it, the, the luxury chariot, that, that fancy car, the retirement fund, the, the filled pantry, all of these things that we can accumulate like Belshazzar did so we can be self-sufficient, so we can be independent, so that we can oh, just be secure. And these aren't bad things to have. There's nothing wrong with having a job, with having a house, with having a car. There's nothing wrong with a retirement plan. There's nothing wrong with having a plan. These are not bad things. But they do make very bad gods. You see, if that's where you find your security, if that's where you find your purpose, that's your God. That's what will define you. What will define your legacy. That's where you will derive your name from. And it's critical that we understand this. Because if we're going to stand against the profane, before we look outward, we must first look inward. Jesus talked about this in in Matthew chapter 7. When he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the while there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Daniel was no hypocrite. He was not perfect. There's only one who's ever lived a perfect life. But he was known as one who was living with the true God. Daniel had his house in order. And because of that, he could stand with credibility and help to remove the specks from the eyes of kings. But Jesus' words also tell us the manner, I believe, in which we are to stand. The manner in how we can honor God and his name that we represent. You see, Daniel was unique. Daniel was one who received a divine revelation. He had received the words and the interpretations from God, the words that were not his own. And because of this, he was God's mouthpiece. He had the right and the ability to stand before people and deliver judgment to deliver judgment upon Belshazzar's life and upon his kingdom. But folks, we do not have the same right and privilege before standing before others. I want to caution us about standing against the profane in a manner where we label ourselves judge, jury, and executioner. Because that's not our role. We are not to be the ones who judge. There is a day of judgment. There will come a time where everybody will be judged. But I thank God that I will not be the one behind the bench doing the judging. See, the role that we've been given is different. I I, I liken it almost more to a housekeeper, if you will. Here's what I mean by that. A housekeeper who gets their own house in order. And once they've got their own house in order, they can then come alongside others. And aid them in cleaning up the specks of dirt in their lives. And how do we do that? We do it by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Words that bring correction. Difficult words at times that bring direction towards God's will and plan for a person's life. Those are words that need to be spoken. But they're spoken in the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ. And when they're spoken from that heart, they offer life rather than condemnation. So I want to leave you with this thought. At some point today or tomorrow, I I, I hope you'll have a chance to gather around a Thanksgiving table with friends and family. 
And at some point, I imagine you're going to have a glass on the table that you can, that you can hold up. And maybe some sort of, of chalice, if you will, but fancier glass. And, and as you hold that up, whatever it's filled with, whether it's sparkling juice or wine, water, Dr. Pepper, whatever your favorite drink is, I want to invite you to look at that chalice, that glass for a second. And consider this. It was created, it was purposed to be filled with something. But so were you. You were created to be filled with something. And what fills you is your choice. See, the world will try to fill your cup with the material things. It will try to fill your cup with that which is fleeting. And it will then ask you to raise the glass of your life and toast the gods of the world. That's a profane purpose for the beautiful masterpiece God created you to be. That is profanity compared to what your intended purposes are to be. You see, God created you, and he loves you, every single one of you. You are his masterpiece. He desires that he alone would be the one who would fill up your life, would fill up your spirit, that he alone would be the one in whom you put your hope for the future, that he alone would be the one who could define what your name is. And he wants that name to be declared as forgiven, as redeemed. He wants to give you the name child of God. And of all the things for us to be thankful for today, let us first and foremost be thankful of God's love shown to us through Jesus Christ who came to pay the price for our sins that separates us from God, who came to make a way that we could be in eternal relationship with God, who made a way that we could receive the Spirit of God, to be filled up with the Spirit of God, to become holy temples ourselves, but then not to go out and profane who God declares us to be by our words and our actions. So I want to invite you today. I invite you to stand against the profane that may exist in your life. They say, I take a stand against that today. I confess that sin. I reaffirm my allegiance to the King of heaven and to his kingdom of God that will stand forever and ever. And if that's the first time you've ever made a confession like that, then I will invite you online or in person to find somebody to talk with following the service today so we can help you understand what it means to take a step to find new life with Jesus Christ. And with that, I invite you to stand as I pray for us all. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for his presence in our lives. We thank you for the presence of of your spirit in this place, in this people that goes throughout this community. God, I pray any way in which we've tried to establish our own kingdoms that we've trusted in ourselves and self-dependence and and in our ways, declaring that our ways are better than your ways, Lord. May we confess that now. May we confess that with words that that say, God, I, I confess that I have filled my life with things that are not of you. That I have profaned what you created me to be. And I want to pour that out. And as that empties, I invite you to come fill it. Fill the cup of my life. Fill the cup of our lives. Lead us, Spirit, to words and deeds that honor and glorify the God of heaven. 
that we would stand against the things of this world that are contrary to your will and your plan, Lord, but that we would do so in a way that honors your name and the God-given names that you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.